Um, this morning I want to talk about this period of time just prior to Jesus being arrested. And there's two things that are going to stand out. One is the timing of this prayer of Jesus. And the other is the content of this prayer of Jesus. I hope it's going to have a deep impact upon you. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would speak to our hearts. And for those of us who've read this high priestly prayer of Jesus many times, may we be freshly struck by the timing of it and the content of it. I pray too, God, for people maybe who are unfamiliar with this prayer at all. That they would just see your love being poured out at such an unusual moment. And it would just strike any unbeliever with the depth of your love and the power of your prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I want to talk about what Jesus was praying in the hour of his arrest. What was he praying? When there are big moments and people are doing certain things, you want to kind of know, well, what were you thinking? What were you doing? And that's what we're going. We're, we're entering into the thought process to the, what was, Jesus was doing. So at the time of Jesus' arrest, he was just about to be arrested. This is Passion Week, Holy Week. This whole week from Sunday, the Palm Sunday, until the actual resurrection of Jesus, this greatest week in the history of the universe, the history of the world, the history of ever, the greatest moment in history was when Jesus went towards that cross and then died and rose from the dead. And so what was he praying what person who is about to face the greatest suffering in their entire life, even the greatest suffering ever known to man, would be using those last hours to pray for others. Most people would be praying for themselves in that hour. God's capacity to love is incomparably displayed in the hours before the betrayal of Jesus, which would set, those hours would set in motion the trial and condemnation of Jesus to be crucified in the discovery that the Father and Son and Spirit were having a conversation intermingled with the glory of the Lamb of God and the future and glory and joy of all believers. Jesus was praying for Himself and He was praying for us in this moment. We must delve into the timing of his prayer and the focus or content of his prayer. So let, let's first look at the timing of Jesus' prayer. Jesus knew exactly what time it was. He prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that, you may that the Son may glorify you. He was fully aware of the surroundings and His mission and what was the next step in the divine appointment book. In fact, Jesus was the only one who actually knew what time it was. There's a special word in the Greek language relevant to time. and It's called kairos, the kairos. It's a special divine appointed time of God. And Jesus knew what time it was. 
No one else was really sure what exactly was taking place. They had other ideas, other hopes. Jesus was not in any way mistaken. This was the hour. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. So the, the glory of God, the moment was at hand that the glory of God would be elevated in such a way. The timing of Jesus' prayer was also that it was Passion Week. It was the week that he would offer himself as the Lamb of God who came to save the lost. It was the week that his entire life had been moving towards. Three times he told his disciples that he was going to Jerusalem to be arrested. In Mark 18, 31, it says, We are going to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. He told them that and they didn't even recognize what was taking place. For we will be de- he will be delivered, the Son of Man will be delivered over to Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will arise. Jesus knew exactly what time it was. And it was the last thing Jesus did prior to his surrender to the crucifixion. Jesus was surrendering. He was in the process of surrendering or submitting himself to the will of God to go to that cross. And the last thing he was found doing as he's entering into that plan is praying. He was praying. He lifted his eyes to heaven and he prayed. His whole life was a life of prayer. He prayed every day. He prayed before every mission. He prayed and fasted 40 days and nights three years earlier to begin his ministry. He prayed all through the night before selecting his 12 disciples. He prayed at the height of busyness. He prayed for divine strength and abiding fellowship. Therefore, could he do any less as he spent his final hours as a free man Matthew 26, 30. In this hour, it says Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He even told Peter, James and John, my soul is sorrowful even to death. He's very conscious of the moment in which he was praying. And what did he do in that moment other than he wanted to talk to his father? He was so intent Prayed and there he proceeded to ask God to remove this awful cup of suffering as his sweat became like great drops of blood. But knowing such a thing was not possible, he fully surrendered to it. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. You see Jesus agonizing in prayer in the moment leading right up to the course being set to the cross. It's the last thing he was doing with his free and his free hours as a man. And it was also the first thing he did in his surrender to the crucifixion. In the moment of his commitment to go forward, he was praying. He was praying at the last act of obedience as a free man. And he was praying as his first act of obedience to the course of action. As Judas the traitor was already marching into Jesus' prayer chamber to arrest him and bind him. And Jesus prayed up to the, up to and into the arrest, betrayal, and sacrifice. 
Such was his life as the high priest of God who moved towards the altar of sacrifice while offering the constant incense of prayer. Knowing the divine hour, walking in the perfect kairos of the heavenly clock, Jesus walked in prayer with every step being in communion with the Father and by the Spirit. Let us learn here the importance of prayer. Let us pray into and through what God has appointed for our lives and for our obedience to His will. So profoundly different is our journey and our trials when we keep in step with the Spirit. Wouldn't you agree to your experience? Isn't your experience so different when you keep in step with the Spirit of God? Can't you tell a profound difference in your anxiety levels when you're walking close to God? Jesus knew what time it was. But let us also be equally impressed with the focus of Jesus' prayer. The focus of His prayer was twofold. First, it was Himself. He was focused upon Himself. His focus is first upon the glory of God. And ought it not be so? Verse 1 says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. He was thinking about Himself. Verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before you before the world existed. And verse 10, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. All things exist for the glory of God. The universe and the creation exist to glorify God. Romans eleven thirty six. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Everything exists for the glory of God. Absolutely everything. You can be sure that no one is more focused upon the glory of God than our glorious God. And it is rightfully so. No matter what is transpiring in this world, no matter how things look in any given moment, even when Jesus was about to be unjustly arrested and wrongfully crucified, it was ultimately for the glory of God. What is God up to every hour of every day? He is about the holy business of His glory. In the end, all things, He will be glorified. There is not one single thing that will not eventually, finally, and eternally reflect His majesty and goodness and justice and power and honor. Just you wait and see. Just wait and see. You'll say, I have no idea how that fit into the grand scheme of God's glory and God's goodness. But just you wait and see. You'll have something happen to you. And it doesn't feel to you that it's even remotely possible that some good could come from it. And just you wait and see. God is going to show you and go, Lord God, I had no idea that even that was intended for your glory. Believe it. Trust it. When our resurrected and reigning King returns and ends the great rebellion and the lion of Judah will roar and every knee will know, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. You can count on it. His focus was upon himself and his glory. But his focus is also upon us. 
That's the part that's so perplexing. But not if you understand the mission of Jesus. The hour has arrived in order that Jesus, as He says in His prayer, give eternal life to all whom the Father has given Him. So Jesus is praying for the glory of God and the salvation of sinners. At the same time, these two concepts were married together. They were intertwined. This was His mission. His mission was to bring glory to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by saving sinners. And thus He prays for our salvation and eternal life and fellowship with God. He is focused upon us for our salvation and eternal life and our fellowship with God. Verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So in this hour, Jesus' heart and Jesus' prayer is that sinners might be granted eternal life and that we might thereby know and experience God both now and forever. In verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. Verse 8, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and come to know in truth that I came from you and that you believed and believe that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for those from the world, but those whom you have given me, for they were yours. Therefore, he is praying for believers. He is praying for those he knows will believe. He is so excited about the future that they shall have together and share together. He is willing to suffer in order that they might enter safely through the gates and into the city of God. And Jesus wants you to be saved. Jesus wants you to have eternal life. Jesus wants you to know God. Jesus wants you to know the Father who gave His only Son for you. And He wants you to know the Son who suffered and died for you. And to know the Spirit who wants to dwell in you and with you. What a glorious invitation is so loudly communicated in this prayer of Jesus based upon the timing of this prayer and the content of this prayer. This is what Jesus had on His mind as He prayed in the garden. You are what Jesus had on His mind as He moved out of the garden towards the hill of crucifixion. And what else does He pray for you besides your salvation? He prays for your unity. Verse 12, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus is not only praying that he will, we will be unified with one another but that we will be unified in and around and through the unity experienced and shared by the Holy Trinity. He's inviting us to experience the kind of unity that the Trinity experiences we are being invited into the fellowship of God. Not only fellowship from God, coming forth from God, the fellowship with God in God. He is inviting us into the circle. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their work, but that they will be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, 
that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. They might even be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, and that they may be perfectly one, so that the world might know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. This is unbelievable stuff. Churches are often sadly divided. The national witness of Christianity is often anything but unity. True unity does not mean dumbing down our convictions so that we join hands with everyone who poses as a Christian, but is based upon a mutual love for Christ that reflects true and determined, a true and determined running after Christ, albeit imperfectly, an unwavering commitment to practice his teaching and submission to his authority. Jesus wants a unified family that clearly recognizes his headship and his authority. Jesus was about to go to the cross and die in order to make it possible for all who would believe in him to join and serve in his army and to march under his banner. Our true brothers and sisters are all those, regardless of temporal affiliations, who love and bow before the Lord of hosts and recognize the throne of God and worship Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus was willing to die for this unity. It was on His heart as He prayed His way to the cross. And He also prays for our joy. He prays for our joy to be intertwined with the joy of God. Verse 13, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves, that we may have the joy that Christ was experiencing. Jesus had such joy anticipating our salvation and entering into fellowship with Him. It brought Him such joy that He was willing to endure the hardship of the cross. Greater was the joy that He was going to uh, bring about knowing that it would end up in our finding and entering into that joy. Too often we forget some this truth about God and that is that God is in favor of our happiness. He is not in favor of temporal happiness. Our happiness is not our God. Our God is Him and He therefore bestows happiness upon Him when we set our affections upon Him. The world cannot give us what God wants to give us. The world cannot give us this kind of happiness. Only God can give us this kind of happiness. This kind of eternal joy and favor. God wants to bless us. In Psalm 1611, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It doesn't say in the world there is fullness of joy. How many of you have found fullness of joy in the world? You found it and you're so content and you're not looking for it anymore because you found it. No, what you find is what I have always found. is that the world makes promises that it cannot deliver. All the things that you're running after. Young people, you're young and you're still believing the lie that somehow there's something in this world that's going to satisfy you in such a way that you do not need God. It is a lie. Too many Christians have, too many people have believed that and often non-Christians imagine a life with God would be boring and miserable. 
And sadly, too many Christians live and look like joy is a rare commodity, an unwelcome visitor. But I want to say, never am I happier than when I am in close fellowship with God. Never am I better able to walk through the peaks and valleys of life than when I am trusting that my God works all things for good. Never can I see through a trial better than when I grip the hand of God. Never does my future look brighter and my past seem less debilitating than when I feed my mind and soul upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus my Savior. My true joy rides in perfect harmony with my present experience in communion with God. When my relationship with God is close and unbroken and I am not clinging stubbornly to some sin, my joy rises and my strength swells. Another thing that He prayed for us is He prayed for our sanctification in this hour. He didn't only pray that we would be saved, He prayed that we would be completed. He didn't only pray that we would enter into the kingdom of God, He prayed that we would begin to live out from the moment of our salvation the work of growth in becoming more like Him. The Father's goal is to make us like Jesus. It is not merely to save us from our sins, but to bring us into likeness of His Son. The goal is high, far higher, infinitely higher than our salvation. It's likeness to Jesus. Our salvation is the beginning of the journey, not the conclusion of it. It is the beginning of the trek. It is the beginning of God's handiwork, not the finishing of it. It's to make us like Jesus. The Son died to save us and to sanctify us. The Spirit indwells us to empower us, to change us. Verse 17, sanctify them. This is Jesus' prayer. Not only to save us, He said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And therefore God talks often about our sanctification. Paul declares that our completion as a believer will end in glorification which is the completion of our sanctification. He calls us, and that is the beginning. When you first become a Christian, you're being set apart. So that is the beginning of your sanctification, being set apart unto God. But there is something called progressive sanctification. Therefore, you are set apart as the initial sanctifying act. It's a declarative act. You are set apart by God, but then there's progressive sanctification, which means you the ongoing growth and maturity maturation of your walk with God and God begins to do the thing, begins to do the thing that He's going to complete, which ends up being called your glorification. You see, this is what God has always had in mind. It's like someone giving birth to a baby and saying, that's all I ever wanted. That's all I ever wanted was to have a baby. I don't want that baby to grow. I don't want that baby to mature. I don't want that baby to learn to walk. I don't want that baby to learn to think. I don't want that. I just wanted a baby. Now that would be a selfish ambition for a mother or father to retard the growth of a child on purpose because they didn't want that child to become everything that they wanted it to be. But God is not that kind of a father. God wants you to be like His Son, and therefore He begins that process of growth. Can you imagine 
God praying, Lord, just save them. Don't worry about changing them. We'll do that later, or maybe we won't. No, He immediately, He starts immediately upon conversion to sanctify us by the truth. What does the Bible say about disciple making? It says baptizing them, in other words, identify them with Christ and immediately start teaching them to put into practice the teachings of Jesus. Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. To what end, Jesus? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. These are the marching orders of Jesus. This was in His prayer as He headed to be crucified. He said, Your word is truth. That is the Bible. The Bible is our manual for life. Our commitment to the Bible is essential. And Jesus prayed for our relationship and commitment to the sacred scriptures as he was about to lay his life upon the altar. Jesus essentially said, your life will be transformed, guided. You will grow, hear my voice, submit, study, worship around the contents of this powerful, living, breathing, relevant, eternal word of God. Jesus was about to be arrested and he told the Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus is prayed for you to have a vital, living, ongoing, constant connection to him and to his word the Bible, that it would be your compass for life and your constant companion. He prayed that prayer even before giving the New Testament scriptures. And then he proceeded to give the scriptures and wants us to understand the importance and blessing of scriptures in line with our sanctification. And the last thing I've noted that Jesus prays for another, the last thing about the content of his prayer is that he prays for our protection from the evil one. The devil is real. The devil is present. The devil is busy. The devil has myriads of demons. The devil hates God and he hates you. The devil wants to destroy you, kill you, put putrid thoughts in your minds, block your view of Jesus, keep you from church or at least a solid church, keep you from the Bible, keep you angry, keep you lusty, jealous, bitter, Verse 15 says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you deliver them from the evil one. Jesus prayed that you would not be duped by the devil. Satan is pure evil. He will come after you. Jesus is praying for Christians. And Peter wrote to Christians. This is to Christians when he wrote this verse. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan is prowling right now. He doesn't mind coming into a church. He doesn't mind coming into Christian community, to a Christian organization, to a Christian group, to a Christian family. He comes and he prowls looking for someone to devour. But we are told... Be sober-minded, be watchful, resist Him. Ephesians 4.27, give no opportunity to the devil. That's a letter to Christians. To Christians in Ephesus in chapter 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes 
of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Jesus told Simon prior to Simon's disowning of Jesus. Simon denied Jesus. Peter denied Jesus three times. But before Peter denied him, Jesus told him that he would do this. And he even said, Simon, the devil is trying to overcome you. He's trying to wreck your life. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is praying that your faith may not fail. If your faith doesn't fail, it's not because you're strong. It's because he is strong and he's praying for you. It is not based on your strength and your might and your wisdom and how mature you have grown. You are no match for the devil who is no match for our God. He says, I have prayed for you, but you must be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. So I want to say in conclusion, everything was happening as a result of the love of God in accordance with the plan of God for the glory of God and for the good of sinners. Simultaneously in Jesus' prayer, these two things were operating in complete unity. Jesus is praying for the, His own glory, the glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit while praying for you that you might be glorified with Him, that you might enter into the joy of salvation. Here is Jesus going toward the cross to do two things, to bring glory to God and salvation to you. That it might please the Father and delight the children who would put their faith and place their faith in God. On Sunday, Jesus was held there as King of the Jews as He rode into Jerusalem. On Palm Sunday, He rode upon a donkey and the crowd shouted, Hosanna. On, G on Tuesday, Jesus entered into great controversies with the Pharisees and Sadducees and priests and scribes and put into motion a murder plot to kill the Son of God. On Thursday, Jesus had His final times of intimate fellowship and teaching with His beloved disciples. He then betrayed, was betrayed by Judas Iscariot, arrested by the temple guards, hauled off to be tried by the Jewish high priest, dragged before Pilate, mocked by Jewish and Roman crowds, shouted down by the masses to be crucified, beaten, beaten ruthlessly with a metal-tipped whip, ripping open his flesh. He was stripped. He was pierced with a crown of thorns upon his head, smashed in the face, forced to carry his own cross, nailed to the cross bars by, bars by metal spikes through his hands and his feet, and hoisted up for all to observe as he hanged before the taunting rabble until he declared it is finished and died." In the waning moments of his freedom, in full knowledge of what was about to be set into motion, as temple guards were on their way, marching, approaching, led him by his own disciple betrayer, Jesus was surrendering to the will of the Father in total submission to the plan that had been established before the world was formed. Jesus was there pleading for eternal, the eternal glory of God and the unending salvation and joy of sinners.
Are you grasping the magnitude of Jesus' prayer in John 17? He was acting as our high priest. And for the first and only time in the history of the world, the high priest was both the intercessor and the sacrifice. He was the one praying and the one getting ready to be sacrificed. And he prayed primarily for two things. For the glory of God and the salvation of sinners. And therefore I lift before you this day, Jesus of Nazareth. I hold up for you the praying Lamb of God. I present to you the bleeding intercessor. I offer to you your Creator and your Savior. I introduce to you the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Are there any here who have not as yet surrendered to this King? Are there any here who are still mocking Him, have doubted Him, laughed at Him, pressed forward day after day in unbelief? Are there any here who year after year have chosen this world with its temporal pleasures? Are you still trying to find something that will last forever in sex or drink or drug or fame or wealth? Is Satan sifting you as wheat and giving you the constant aftertaste of bitterness and dissatisfaction? Are you still on the endless chase of the next high but never a settled state of calm and peace? Then I invite you, come to Jesus and drink from His waters. Can you now hear the Savior has prayed for you do you not know that His prayer at Gethsemane continues now at the right hand of the Father? He who prayed for you there is praying for you there. Jesus is praying for you right now. And He is saying, I love you. Do you understand what I've done for you? And will you open your heart to me now? If you have never opened your heart to Jesus, can you not hear Him calling you in His prayer? Does not the prayer of Jesus in John 17, as He was just about to be arrested in order to voluntarily go to the cross to bleed out, on your behalf. Does that not summon anything inside of you? There's only one possible way that anyone in this room can hear what I'm saying and still not hear what I'm saying. You can hear the words, but you feel no movement in your heart. It's because the veil is still over your heart and you hear the word, but you have not yet grasped the love of God in Christ for you. And therefore, I am asking right now that in the name of Jesus Christ and the authority of Jesus Christ, that Satan's blinders would come off of you right 
now and that you would hear the prayer of the Savior for you on your behalf and the veil would go up that the light may come in. Unbeliever, the door is open. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Is He near? Is He near to you right here, right now? Do you feel Him knocking at the door of your heart? Can you believe that this is true? Can you believe that a dying Savior, the Creator of the universe, that God died for your sin? Then receive Him, my friend. Say, yes, Lord, I hear. I understand. I am overwhelmed that you were thinking of me as you went toward that cross. I have resisted. I have tried to find pleasure and joy in other things. I surrender. I give up. It's a fool's errand. I cannot find the pleasures of this world to meet the deep needs of my soul. Every time I try, I end up dissatisfied. I am ready to quit trying that and give myself to you. Can you pray with me, Lord God, have mercy upon my soul. And I put my faith in you, you who loved me and died and chose to go to that cross for me. I give myself, I surrender my life and my soul into your care and into your hand right here, right now. Lord Jesus, will you have me? Oh, could you not pray that? Could not the light of the gospel shine in your heart right now, right here, and you say, I want that. I want you, Jesus. I take you. I receive you. I accept your love. And I turn away from this world. And I want to drink the water of salvation right here, right now. As many as believed in him, he gave the right to become the sons of God. To my believing friend, can you believe it? Can you believe what He's done? Can you ponder this? Will you not meditate upon this great love of God forever and ever and ever? Will you not thank Him beginning now and then over and over again into eternity? Will we give Him the praise He deserves? Will we not tell others what He has done? Commit yourself to His Word and pray to the Spirit for a deepening work of sanctification in your life. I ask you, if you are a believer, then here is the challenge for you. Hear what He has done for you. Know that He was praying for you. Commit yourself to a deepening work of sanctification in your life. Lord God, you prayed for my sanctification. Would you now today further that work in me? Resist the devil, ponder his strategies, and then put on the whole armor of God. Join more fully and intentionally into the work of God. Quit arguing over every little thing and seek a true and deep unity among the brethren. Crown him king, raise the banner of Jesus high, and let us exalt his name together. We're going to sing... And we're going to lift His name now. I've tried to make this high priestly prayer as simple as I know how. Keep in mind that Jesus knew 
the time of the prayer. He knew what was at stake. And the content of his prayer was the glory of God and the joy of sinners who would turn to Christ. It was his own glory and your salvation. See this prayer differently from this day forth. Let's pray. Our Father, our God, our King, our Savior, our Lord, thank you, Father, that you sent the Son to bleed out upon the cross for us. Thank you, Son, that you willingly endured the suffering of the cross. Thank you for your prayer. Thank you for that prayer. Thank you for putting that prayer into the Word of God. There is no prayer like that prayer in all the Bible. Nothing reflects more your love for us than the timing of that prayer and the content of that prayer. We are loved. And dear Lord God, we want to praise you forever and ever for what you have done. And we now lift up your name with our voices. And as we sing, oh God, may we deal in our heart. May we do business with you as we pray. May we kneel May we come forward. May we turn to a brother or sister in Christ. Or may we, may we simply renew our commitment to you this day. You are our Savior. Next week we will celebrate the resurrection. But we will do it now with greater consciousness of what you were praying in those final hours. In Jesus' name, amen.